Hi, Fight Fans. This is Ring Talk. I'm Lou Eisen. And today we're going to talk about one of the most controversial fights. I would say probably the top five most controversial fight in the history of modern boxing going back to 1700. I would say the most controversial fight is the fight between Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney, the rematch in 1927, specifically the seventh round, the Battle of the Long Count. But we'll get to that in another show. Uh, this fight is between the newly named Muhammad Ali, the undisputed, well, actually at that time he wasn't the undisputed world heavyweight champion. The WBA, in their ultimate stupidity, withdrew their recognition of him as champion after he beat Liston because he had a rematch scheduled with Liston. So in order to understand his fight, we have to understand uh, the circumstances, the decade in which it happened. And this is the 1960s. 1960s were very turbulent, violent, seething cauldron of change throughout the United States, which affected the whole world. At the beginning of the 1960s, you have this charismatic, Harvard-educated, brilliant young lawyer, uh, John F. Kennedy, as president. And he, in his inauguration speech, he says, there's no limitations on what the mind and the American public can do. We want to take a man to the moon, return him within the decade. So the limit, there are no limitations anymore in the United States in Kennedy's mind. And he gives that, that same feeling and inf he infuses all Americans with it. Everyone's in a good mood. Everyone's, not everyone, but Americans are thrilled now that they have someone who's young and hip and in the White House and in the know. So in that time span, Muhammad Ali wins the Olympic silver or Olympic gold medal, light heavyweight, 1960 in Rome. He first starts training with Archie Moore, H.N. Archie Moore, the former undisputed world light heavyweight champion. Doesn't like Moore's way of training him. He made Muhammad wash floors, do the dishes, and Muhammad said, when I grew up, that was what my mama did. I'm not doing that. So he left, and the Louisville sponsoring group, 11 white millionaires who put their money together to, as they said, steer him away from mob control, which was very real in professional boxing, uh, we're going to set you up, we're going to look after you, and we're going to get you another trainer. And the other trainer they got is a man who uh, I'm proud to say was my surrogate father, and I think the best trainer in the history of boxing, if not all professional sports, and that's Angelo Dundee. At that time, in 1960-61, Sonny Liston wasn't yet the world heavyweight champion. He was the best heavyweight in the world from probably 56, 1956, 57 on. Problem was, was is that he was a mob-controlled fighter. And mob control in professional boxing uh, goes back to, I guess, the early 1900s to late 1890s. And they treated all fighters horrifically, stole their purses, fixed a lot of fights. But in particular, they treated African-American fighters worse than dirt. African-American fighters are essentially slaves for the mafia because very few, if any of them, ever got any money for their fights. In fact, uh, Hall of Famer Ike Williams, the all-time great world lightweight champion, uh, defended his title once for 80 grand, and the check he got from Blinky Palermo was for, I think, three or four grand. And he said, I signed for 80 grand, and Palermo took a gun out, put it in his head, and said, here's the deal. Take the money or take the bullet. And so he took the money. 
and ended up broke. This is why I have a big problem with people who say, well, boxing was better when the mob controlled it. Better for whom? Certainly not the fighters who ended up broke and indigent. So Muhammad Ali's group was the Louisville Swanson group wanted to make sure this did not happen to him. Liston, we don't know truly when he was born. He said he claimed to have been born in 1932, which would have made him uh, 30, 32 when he fought uh, Ali the first time and 33 when he fought him the second time. However, Angel Dundee's brother, Chris, the Hall of Fame promoter, had an issue of Ring Magazine, which I saw, that had a poster from the mid-30s, 35, 36, featuring 17-year-old Sailor Boy Sonny Liston. So if it was from 1934 and Liston was 17, that would mean he was born in 1917, which meant when he first fought Ali, um, he would have been 47 years old and 48 years old in the rematch a year later, May 25th, 1965. I don't think he was 47 or 48 years old. He was certainly a lot older than 32. Mind you, when you see photographs of, of Liston from the uh, 1950s, he does look a lot younger. I think the circumstances of his sad life and the pressures he was under aged him rapidly. Liston was the 25th of 26 children born to Tobe Liston in Arkansas. And the great uh, writer Jerry Eisenberg of the Newark Newark Star Ledger. Um, if you ever get a chance, read anything he writes about boxing. Just a brilliant writer. He said Liston worked in the fields from the age of five to the age of 16, all day, every day, seven days a week. And when the family mule died, Liston was about eight or nine. His father took the reins from the mule, the harness, and hitched it up to Liston and said, you the mule now. So Liston had to pull the plow every day. His father beat him up every day to such an extent that when his father didn't beat him up, Liston would ask him, are you all right, Dad? Is there something wrong today? And Liston lived with his, with his uh, 25 siblings in a one-room shack where they slept on the floor. He had no schooling at all. Father, even if schooling was available, which it wasn't because of the color of his skin, if there was schooling, his father wouldn't have allowed it because he needed him on the farm. He was a he was a um, sharecropper. So Liston actually saved up money by by collecting and selling chestnuts. His mother had left years before for St. Louis. He got a ticket, went to St. Louis, and unbelievably asked a couple of people he first met, "Do you know this person?" And they knew his mother. And he went to see her, and his mother said, "What the hell are you doing here? You know, I I, I can't help you." So Liston fell in with other young kids and started to do gas station robberies. The thing about Liston, of course, was he couldn't get a job because he had no education and he couldn't read or write. And when you look at the racism that was endemic to the United States, especially in the Southern United States, Liston has to be one of the most profound, profound excuse me, victims of it. Liston gets arrested, he goes to prison. In prison, Liston was a feared man. Everyone feared Liston, including the guards. When there were fights between African-American groups and, and white groups or, or neo-Nazi groups, all Liston had to do was show up, look at the other person and say, this is not going to go down this way. And everyone agreed. Liston was a scary individual. Started the box in prison. We don't know if that's true or not because of what I said earlier about Chris Dundee. There were rumors that he had a box before. 
and they said he was a boxing prodigy. It's hard for someone to start off like that. There's only one or two examples in the entire 300-year history of modern boxing where a guy starts boxing and within a couple of weeks is that good because he has natural talent. Liston was destroying every other prisoner in prison, including ex-prize fighters who were there. So they, they called up some professional fighters who came in with some professional trainers. They were mobbed up in St. Louis through Joe Vitale, and they uh, looked at Liston, and they couldn't believe how good he was. It was like they found a 400 hitter right under their nose. So they helped him, along with the priests in prison, get paroled early. He got out in parole. And he started to box professionally. And his uh, his uh, manager of record was Pep Barone, who was an acolyte of of uh, Blinky Palermo and Frankie Carbo, who ran boxing, uh, courtesy of the Lucchese family, crime family in New York. Although Liston, for most of his career, was controlled by Chicago's mob uh, family, the Outfit. So Liston's going up through the uh the ranks but of course he gets back in jail several times he he has various uh infractions with the law apparently once in philadelphia took 16 cops 16 policemen beating him with batons to subdue him uh angelo dundee told me that sonny liston had extraordinary super human strength. He said one time, Liston, when he was in, living in Denver with his wife, Geraldine, a couple of kids were just throwing a baseball around. There's seven or eight. And the baseball rolled under his car and one of the kids cried, that's my favorite baseball and it's autographed. And Liston said, don't worry. Liston lifted up the car with his arms from the front and let the kid crawl in and get the baseball and crawl out. That's how strong the man was. So Liston is moving up the ranks, uh, courtesy of the mob, to help him get the fights. He has one setback. He fights a guy in uh, the early 50s named Marty Marshall, who uh, Liston is laughing at because his skills aren't that great. And while he's laughing, he hits Liston and he beats him, doesn't knock him out, but he breaks his jaw. Liston has to take six months off where he gets into trouble again, ends up in jail. By 53, 54, 55, he's starting to get more fights and moving up the ladder. Rocky Marciano retires. And what happens is they have um, the two contender, top contenders, Floyd Patterson and Archie Moore, who had lost to Marciano after knocking him down, fight for the title. That was a controversial fight, but Patterson stopped Moore in the fifth round with a belly shot. So Patterson's the champ. By 1950, this is 1955, by 56, 57, it's clearly evident to everyone in the sport and the writers covering the sport that Sonny Liston is the best heavyweight in the world. He, he should have got a title shot in 57, but Customato, the manager and trainer of Floyd Patterson, as well as, of course, Mike Tyson and Jose Torres, uh, prevented that, knowing that his fighter, who had a chin as brittle as a 50-year-old coat of paint, wouldn't last more than a couple seconds against Liston. So he held him off. And Liston, usually when you win a world title, you clean, clean out the division to declare your supremacy. Liston cleaned out the divi heavyweight division before he won the world title. And there was nothing they could do to prevent it. There was no one else for Patterson to fight. So in 62, against the wishes of John F. Kennedy, who told him, don't fight him, Liston, he's a mob guy. 
He fought Liston. Liston knocked him out in two minutes and four seconds. You can't call it a fight because Patterson would have had to actually throw a punch back and land, which he didn't. They fight a year later. Liston knocks him out. And same time, only four seconds later, two minutes and 10 seconds. It's agreed that no one's going to beat Liston. He's going to hold the title until the end of time. So at this time, while this is going on, Cassius Clay is an amateur boxer, and he's winning the AAU light heavyweight title. He's doing well in the late 50s. He makes the Olympic team. The American Olympic team goes to Rome. They call him the mayor of the Olympic Village, wins the light heavyweight gold medal. And the thing that was incredible about that was he was only 18, and he's fighting against fighters from the Iron Curtain, Romania, Hungary, Soviet Union, fighters that were in their 30s, were mature men, and for all intents and purposes, were professional fighters. But his speed and footwork was so incredible, and his ability to anticipate punches, that they couldn't handle him. So he wins the gold medal, comes back, gets to Louisville sponsoring group, finally ends up with Angelo Dundee as his trainer, and he starts to move up the heavyweight ladder. As he's moving up the heavyweight ladder, Angelo Dundee, who was one of, if not the best, at matching fighters correctly so that with each successive fight, their skill level improves as well um, as, as, um, as their confidence. So Cassius is moving up the ladder. He's beating guys. The first glitch in the road is when he fights a guy named Sonny Banks who drops him in the fourth round. Cassius gets up, drops him, drops him in the fourth round, ends up winning the fight. Then, just before he fights Liston, he fights the British fighter, Henry Cooper. And in the fourth round, Cooper caught him with a left hook. Ali backed out, was in close, in the clinch, backed out with his head up. Cooper, bang, left hand. And Ali said, he hit me so hard, he jarred my kinfolk in Africa. So he drops, drops the young Cassius Clay down. Clay gets up, Angelo helps him to the corner, and as Angelo said, he's out. His eyes are open, he's talking, but he is unconscious, and he's out on his feet. So they put water on him, Angelo takes ice cubes, rubs him against Clay's testicles, breaks a cap of pneumonia off, smelling salts at Clay's knees. And I said, why don't you do it under the nose? And, and Angelo said, if you do it under the nose, you'll, you'll fry the man's brain. So he does this, and it wakes Cassius up, at which point Angelo says, go out, get rid of him now. This was the famous glove incident where they said Angelo took a razor blade and cut Muhammad's glove to buy him more time. It's completely untrue. When, uh, when Cassius got into the ring, uh, there was a slight tear on the wrist of his glove. He showed it to Angelo. Angelo said, don't mention it to the ref. We may need this sometime in the fight. And that was really prescient thinking on Angelo's part. So he has everyone gather around, you know, Bandini Brown, Chicky Ferreira, who was really Angelo's main influence, who was a veteran trainer, and Rahman Ali, Muhammad's brother. And Angelo takes his index fingers and widens the cut a bit. When I asked Henry Cooper, I said, is it true that it gave him an extra half hour to recover? He laughed. He said it gave him an extra 15 to 30 seconds. And that's all Clay needed. It comes out, cuts Cooper in the next round, fights over. Back in the dressing room, Jack Nyland, Liston's mob-appointed manager, says, you got your date with death. 
we will fight you now. You get your chance at the title. And so when they're fighting for the world heavyweight title, in order to get the fight, because Liston was a mob fighter, Clay had to sign a contract that stated he would give him a rematch if he won the fight. Now, that's significant because later on, the WBA pulled recognition of, of Muhammad Ali after he changed his name because he gave Liston a rematch. It was really a self-serving, ridiculous move, and it helped to lower the brand of the WBA if such a thing was even possible. So Muhammad's training for the fight. He's ready for the fight. Liston didn't train at all because he didn't think Muhammad was going to go more than a round at the most. He thought this fight will not last. Out of the 100 sports writers that were there, 97 picked Liston within a round. One guy picked him within two rounds. Three people, two Americans and one Brit, picked Cassius Clay. And the reason they picked him is they said, Liston, and it's, it was a fact. He's only had three fights in the past three years, and each fight has gone only one round. He knocked out the German Willie Bestman off in one round, and then a year later he knocked out Patterson in a round, and a year after that he knocked Patterson out in a round once again. And everyone thought, you're not going to beat Liston. And Jerry Eisenberg, as I mentioned, mentioned him earlier, said, the only way you're going to beat Liston is to take out the American army and shell him with artillery for seven days, and even that's not a given. Um, Cassius Clay was a seven to one underdog. Those are the best odds you can get on him. Most of it was 10 to one. Before Liston fought him, and before Liston was champion, he'd fought, um, he'd beaten by decision Eddie Macon, and he'd also beaten Zora Foley, and he'd knocked out Cleveland Williams. But all three of those fighters had something in common. Williams staggered Liston in the second round. When he came out for the third round, midway through the round, his eyes were burning. Machen, and Zora Foley were boxing well against Liston. And then midway through the fight, their eyes started to burn. Liston's handlers had put some astringent on his gloves, which Liston then put into their eyes. Some people say it was Tiger Bomb. Other people say it was Monsell's solution. Who knows? No one mentioned it except Eddie Mason, who blamed the mafia for it and then died mysteriously. Mind you, it was eight years later that he died. So during this fight, Muhammad, excuse me, Cassius Clay is beating Liston, and he's beating him with the greatest of ease. He's using lateral movement. And they noticed one thing when watching Liston fight. Liston would jab, but when he would jab, his head would be out of his front foot, which essentially meant he was off balance. So if you hit him a shot, then he would absorb the whole shot in his head and not be able to diffuse the power of the shot through his legs. And when you watch the fight, after Clay gets his legs, Second, third, fourth round, he's countering Liston's jab, left jab, ponderous left jab, and he's hammering him with that counter right hand over and over, and he's staggering Liston with it. And he opens a mouse, big, huge mouse, under Liston's left eye. In the fourth round, he pops it open. Liston had never been cut before. And he's outboxing Liston, and he's beating the hell out of him. So Liston has his corner put the astringent on his gloves, burns Ali's eyes. Ali can't see. He walks around. Uh, Angelo quiets him down, tries to wash out the astringent, sends him out for the next round. He's using his left arm as a yardstick, which is difficult because Liston had a longer reach. But still, he's keeping Liston off. 
And Liston looked at him. Someone said, like, a kid looks at a new red bicycle on Christmas morning. But this was it. Liston couldn't get him. And then you go into the sixth round, and now Clay's angry, and he's pot-shouting Liston, and he's talking to him. And pounding him incessantly, lumping him up, Liston goes to the corner. And Liston was a bully, and he did what all bullies do when someone stands up to them. He quit. He quit in his corner. He said that my left arm uh, was pulled out of the socket. And that was entirely untrue because when you look at the fight and the round before, he, he threw dozens of left hooks, couldn't land them. He did have bursitis, it was said, in training camp in both shoulders. Could have delayed the fight if he wanted to, but chose not to. So it was the most stunning upset in boxing history. People couldn't believe what their eyes had seen. They thought it was a fix. That fight was called a fix, but it makes no sense because Liston, Liston would not give up the heavyweight title because it defined him, but he did give it up. He gave it up sitting on his stool. So they have the rematch. And basically what I want to prove to you, I'm going to endeavor to show you in this episode, is the fact that the rematch, which was called the a fix, was not a fix. And I can prove to you categorically that it was not a fix. The rematch was scheduled for Boston, Massachusetts. At that time, the WBA, which was the president was Ed Lastman, who was a deli owner from Florida. He was the Miami Beach boxing commissioner. Didn't want the rematch to go through. He said, WBA doesn't allow rematches, but that was garbage. It was entirely untrue because WBA allowed Patterson to fight Ingemar Johansson three times in a row. And Liston signed a rematch clause with Patterson. He had to, or he wouldn't have received the title shot. So they said Liston's contract with Patterson was the worst lawyers that anyone had seen in the history of the sport. So the fight, they're training for the fight. It's going to be in Boston. WA says they're going to suspend Boston from the WBA. WBA meets at a, uh, they have a big convention of old white right-wing, bigoted, virulent anti-African-American uh, members from various boxing commissions throughout the United States and Canada. And they strip Ali of his title because how dare he become a Muslim? What gives this man the right to change his name? Other fighters had done it, and they didn't have a problem with that, but they were white. They also said they wanted to put Liston back in the gutter where he belongs. Why did Liston belong back in the gutter? I mean, these were overt racist comments that no one back then took, took them to task for. Liston's getting in shape and he's excited now. And the writers who have followed him throughout his whole career said he's gonna win the title back because they can't believe the shape that he's in mentally and physically. He's running 15, 20 miles a day, thousands of sit-ups, thousands of push-ups, skipping rope, hitting the heavy bag, destroying sparring partners. And he's ready to fight in Boston. And a couple of days before the fight, Ali has um, suffers an, an ingual, incarcerated ingual hernia. He's sitting in his hotel room, throws up blood, collapses, gets them to the hospital. They do emergency surgery. And they said he's got to take six months off. In fact, a doctor that did the surgery said, I don't want to cut into him because his body's too perfect. And another doctor said, I want to borrow. Muhammad Ali's body for six or for 
a weekend. There's three women I want to meet and two guys I want to beat up. So his name is now Muhammad Ali. In fact, Angelo's son Jimmy told me that he changed his name six months before to Muhammad Ali, but didn't announce it until after he won the world heavyweight title. So the fight is now rescheduled for May 25th, Lewiston, Maine. And Liston falls apart. Hard to blame him. He's an older man. And it's hard to keep up that level of fitness and mental focus when someone says to you, well, you got to wait another 24 weeks. How, how do you do that? Not many fighters could and Liston couldn't. And the week weekend before, when people were watching him train, they thought, this guy won't be, how is he fighting for the world heavyweight title? He's, he can't get the speed bag going. He keeps missing on the heavy bag. He's missing punches and throwing de- falling down. He's missing on the skipping rope. He can't get a rhythm going. The fight goes on. Now, people said that he hit him with a phantom punch. Not true. If you watch the tape of the fight, the minute the bell rings, the first thing that happens, Liston charges out at Ali, throw, and Liston fought the same way in every fight. Two shuffle steps forward, double jab, right hand. He did that. Ali slips the punches, especially the right hand, hits him with a counter right, and, and first punch of the fight, and he hurts Liston. And it was just over a minute and a half later, that was the same punch he knocked him out with. Ali's circling Liston. Liston looks disinterested. He's uncoordinated. He's not cutting the ring off on him. He's simply following him around in a straight line. He just keeps following and following Ali around. And that was the plan. He's the older man. Let's get him, let's get him to chase Muhammad around the ring. Liston's got to constantly reset his stance. Therefore, he's got to punch while he's moving. And to do that and be accurate, it's very difficult to do. Liston keeps following him around. Now, the problem, the reason why they called the fight a fix is six or seven things happened simultaneously that confused a lot of people. And it it wasn't handled well. As we see, Ali's backed into a corner. Liston lunges forward with his head out over his front foot. Ali does what Angelo Dundee taught him to do. Slip, slide, bang. Slip to the right about a half inch. Avoid the jab, counter with the right hand. Ali hits him with the right hand on the tempo. Liston didn't see it, which are the kind of punches to get you out of there. His shoulders shudder, and he goes down. The knockdown was legitimate. One thing that caused... All this hullabaloo about a fix was Liston gets up on his knee and then falls back down again. That was an Oscar-worthy performance. Maybe his blood pressure was off and he got a head rush and he fell down. I don't think so. What happened all at the same time was Ali hits Liston with the right hand. What's supposed to happen? The referee who who had not refereed before, Jersey Joe Walcott, former heavyweight champ, does not tell Ali to go to the farthest neutral corner. He should have. He didn't. Ali's running around the ring like a lunatic with a hot foot. And so Ali keeps running around. Decorum was never uh, recovered. So at the time Ali's running around, Nat Fleischer, the editor of Ring Magazine, is at ringside yelling at Walcott, come over here. 
Walcott should have ignored him because Fleischer was only there as a writer for the magazine. He was not in any official capacity, but he couldn't resist. His ego wouldn't let him resist the temptation to get involved with the fight. Lit, uh, Walcott should have ignored him. Ali hits Liston, number one. Liston, or Ali won't go to a neutral corner, number two. Number three, Fleischer calls him over. Walcott goes over, doesn't, that, that's number four. Doesn't call time, five. Doesn't let Ali, doesn't, you know, not directed Ali to a neutral corner. Picks up the count from the timekeeper who says, it's over. And he goes back and he stops the fight. Liston said he stayed down because Ali was running around the ring like a madman. And he was afraid Ali would hit him or Ali might kick him accidentally. And for once in his life, Liston was telling the truth. Ali came very close to bumping into Liston and to Walcott. Walcott lost complete control of the proceedings. Liston, as he said a couple of years later, and the only time he spoke about the fight, he got up and he said, if you watch the tape, I was fighting back. Liston started to punch back. Ali easily avoided the punches and started to unload on Liston big time. And I don't think Liston would have made it out of the round if the fight was allowed to continue. When a fight is fixed, the mob would fix a fight in every instance if they had control of the man winning the fight. The mob didn't control Muhammad Ali. At this point, Ali in the rematch was controlled and had joined the Nation of Islam. They controlled his finances. The mob wasn't able to muscle in on them because of the fruit of Islam, were well-armed and were, were disciplined and they weren't gonna kowtow to the mafia. The mafia was not gonna get any more money from Muhammad Ali other than their percentage of the first fight against Liston. Liston wouldn't go down and, and participate in a fixed fight. Why? because the heavyweight championship, the world defined him. He felt worthless otherwise. The proof is in the tape. He got up, he was fighting back. Guys that take dives don't get up and make an effort to fight back. If it was fixed, why didn't Liston just stay down and take the full 10 count? He didn't. Ali had him against the ropes. Walcott comes back after conferring with the timekeeper and Nut Fleischer and stops the fight. Everyone was shocked. No one was more shocked than Muhammad Ali, who asked his brother Rahman, Rocky, did I hit him? He said, you hit him. You hit him with the right hand. It happened so quickly. And Liston went down. And it was a legitimate punch. And then Ali had to run around the ring like a crazy man. That's why that famous picture you see, the most famous in all sports, of him standing over Liston, and he's saying, Get up, get up, you bum. Get up and fight. He wanted to have a legitimate knockout. And one thing working against Liston was Ali had lost his fear entirely of Sonny Liston after beating him the first time. So the fight's over. Everyone calls it a fix because it was um, a phantom punch, they said. But there was no way that it was a fix. Everyone that said it was a fix, everyone from Liston's handler, Ash Resnick, to Barnett McGids, who was a notorious pathological liar. Everyone that says online it was a fix, there's no proof. There's no evidence that it was a fix. 
people will say that fight was fixed. Show me the evidence. FBI looked into it, said, originally thought it was fixed and said there was no fix. And it makes no sense. Why would they give up the richest prize in all of sport, the world heavyweight title, to Muhammad Ali and the Nation of Islam? They wanted to control it. There, it just, no one has presented evidence of any kind. There's no evidentiary basis to prove that Liston deliberately took, a di- deliberately took a dive. People will still say, well, that fight was fixed. I don't care what you say. But you have to care what people say because people like myself, historians who look into it, can verify that there is no existing proof from anyone, even in mob talk, that the fight was fixed, that Liston deliberately went into the tank. And there was no reason. He needed the money, and he wanted the title back. And the other proof that it wasn't a fix was, of course, the mob controlled the other heavyweight titleist, Ernie Terrell, who won the WBA title from Eddie Machen. So they covered themselves on both ends. And, of course, after the fight, Muhammad went on to this Hall of Fame career, becoming the most famous man still on the face of the earth. Liston fought second-tier fighters for the rest of his life until they got knocked out by Leotis Martin and then had his last fight in against Chuck Webner in New Jersey. And the sad thing, of course, with Liston is we know he died from, it's rumored, a hot shot by the mob that they came over. Liston had opened his mouth to his to Ash Resnick, his mob handler, and said, I don't want to be muscle for the mob anymore. I just want to be a person that's a, a loan shark. They said, no, Liston threatened to go to the mob or to the media. You don't do that with the mob. And came over to his house, slipped him a Mickey, and then gave him a hot shot of cocaine and heroin. Ali was saddened by this because he genuinely didn't dislike Liston. He wanted to get to know him, and he was starting to do that before this happened. That's the story of the fight. That's the story of what occurred May 25th, 1965. If there are people out there who think the fight was fixed, I would like to see the irrefutable evidence you have, because for the last 55 years, I've been told that story, and I've seen no evidence of it. My name's Lou Eisen. This has been Ring Talk. We'll see you again next week.